You're listening to the NASA and Silicon Valley podcast, episode 21. Today's guest is Michelle Esho, software lead for air traffic management in the aviation systems division. As we like to say, NASA is with you when you fly. That couldn't be more true during the crazy holiday air traffic season. We discuss with Michelle the fascinating software tools that NASA is working on to better understand air traffic management and how researchers can help improve flying for everyone. Apart from this conversation, you should also check out nasa.gov Ames and our Facebook and Twitter feeds for information on Future Flight Central, a two-story, 360 degrees, full-scale air traffic control slash air traffic management simulation facility at Ames that enables researchers and others to test and practice in a simulated environment. We'll have some images and video up uh, before the end of the week. But before this introduction gets too long, here's our conversation with Michelle Isho. I always like to start it off with, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about how you joined mm. NASA, how you got to Silicon Valley. Okay. Um, yeah, I grew up in Nevada. I was born in Las Vegas. Awesome. Um, my dad was a band leader and a trombone player in Las Vegas. <laughs> okay. My mom was in real estate, so I don't really have a NASA pedigree or heritage or even engineering heritage. But uh, in high school, I was really into science fiction and fantasy and we even had a Tolkien Society Club at our high really? school, which was intensely geeky. <laughs> and uh, this was back in the days before, before the, the web movies. or internet. Well, before even, yeah, before the movies. I think there was a bad cartoon at the time. but I remember that one. Nothing good, yeah. <laughs> and so... Um, Are you I drilling into like the Silmarillion? Is that how far down it goes? I did, uh, did read all the books several times. <laughs> and we would have meetings and discuss it and it was yeah awesome. intensely geeky but uh, she also that same English teacher who ran that club also taught a science fiction and fantasy class that I got a whole credit for for English which was awesome and I think I didn't really know what aerospace engineering was I just knew it it had to do with space flight and okay. sounded really cool and um, then I was looking around at colleges and University of Colorado um, turns okay. out has a, a lot of astronaut graduates and even yeah. back then it was one of the top as far as astronaut graduates I'm like well it must be good if it's good enough for astronauts it must be good enough for <laughs> for me to go learn aerospace engineering and so I ended up going from Nevada over to the University of Colorado so not too far no not too far the definitely West. the western yeah and then in my senior year uh, NASA was doing on-campus interviews and I talked to someone from Marshall and someone from Ames and ended up getting an offer from here. And I have relatives in the area and wow. wanted to stay in the West. So it was just a natural fit to come out here. And the ironic thing is I really haven't worked in the space side. I've worked in aeronautics okay. uh, almost the whole time. I had three years on uh, in space where I was sort of on an assignment over there, but then came back. But my first 10 years or so was in rotorcraft research and um, I spent a lot of time on in in the back of a CH-47 tandem helicopter, okay. which was a research helicopter with a fly-by-wire control system on it, which is ironic because it's such a big lumbering aircraft. But uh, that's when I learned that I have really bad motion sickness and probably would not have made a good astronaut anyway. <laughs> Because I had to take medicine every time we flew. And, you, only, um, you can only take so much Dramamine. Yeah, you can like... only take so much. I don't think you can take that every four hours in space. So, <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, I did that for a while and then um, got asked to come over to the air traffic control side because I have a lot of software 
experience and uh, what we do now is yeah. a lot of software focus. And it's a lot of the stuff that I think most people don't necessarily think of NASA right away. Um, right. You know, NASA's origins is in aeronautics, NACA, mm-hmm. which is what Ames used to be before NASA was founded. And you know, for people who are in the area, they see the big wind tunnels or maybe they know about like the vertical motion simulator or, or something like that. But you know, moving into like air traffic or some of the work they're working on drones and stuff. Um, some people probably wouldn't be aware that we're doing that kind of research. Right. So I think sometime in the 80s, we had um, a scientist in our group that was just really visionary in the air traffic management world and wanted to take some of the ideas that were made for autopilots and things like that and see if they could work on the ground and make things work better. And uh, he was able to make contact with FAA, and they've come to rely on us as a as their research arm. So it's one of our, I guess you would say, missions now is to help the FAA deploy more advanced technologies. We're really good at the algorithm side, the automation side. And FAA, of course, has to deal with the reality of deployment to many different facilities and making it work in all conditions and that kind of thing. But And so when you um, came straight out of school over to Ames as an aerospace aeronautics engineer, and you talked about some of the work you've done with like air traffic control, did you have to have also a background in um, like computer science or because you're dealing with these like complex algorithms and stuff or is it kind of just two sides of computer science is one of the foundations of the work we do in air traffic management I went back to Stanford and got a master's degree with a focus on control theory which is also okay. a big part of air traffic management so it's a blending of a lot of different disciplines I happen to just really be interested in writing software and okay so even in the rotorcraft side I got is. into that yeah it's <laughs> just a lot of fun I think it's very rewarding to, to write okay. something and see it work and um, you know, ro- code that I've written has been handed to the FAA and is now running in all the air traffic facilities in the U.S. So I can point to lines of code that I know <laughs> I wrote <laughs> 20 years ago that are still out there. So I think that's really exciting. And um, so uh, I'm not an air, I'm not a computer scientist by any means. Um, yeah. I did get to spend a semester at MIT as sort of a sabbatical, which was an awesome thing that NASA did for me back in 2000. I got to se- spend a semester at the Laboratory for Computer Science back at MIT and um, worked with a professor there who was more involved with uh, high dependability systems, and which was a, a great learning experience for me to see how they model the dependability and predict the dependability of complex software. When you came on board at NASA, when you first started looking at some of the, like, the air traffic control, was there already a group that existed that was already working on that? And you got to, you just joined in or rebuilding it almost from scratch? Oh or? yeah, when I joined, there was already something well underway for probably eight or 10 years. They were getting close to doing their first field test at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. Okay. So it's the first time they were gonna have controllers uh, use the tools in a real environment with real traffic flying. And so um, I came in and just a couple months later, they promoted me to be the software manager for that whole effort to get the tools out because um, I guess I'm good at wrangling software engineers <laughs> and um, getting keeping them focused and keeping the researchers from giving us more than we can handle to implement. So the researchers get the, have the ideas and the software team implements them. And then we take it through um, simulation in the lab and simulation with in a more complex lab with real controllers and then finally testing 
in the real world. So um, that was already well underway when I came on, but I was lucky enough to get to get to watch it all the way through the field testing and hand off to the FA and then five or six years of yeah. tech transfer work with the FA to make sure they understood what we gave them okay. so that it wouldn't, so that because it was a, you know, a million lines of software that. It's, it's um, not like you just write it all and you're like, here you go, guys. Yeah, you Take can't, just give them, can't just give them a, a, a USB drive and say, go have fun <laughs> with the have software. It was very, uh, so we had a lot of pe- people exchanging. We had people come out here for a year at a time and learn it and um and it's it's been the foundation for a lot of really good stuff for the fa for their whole next gen program i would say we've had a big contribution to that i know recently you'd been working on a project called or, or a program called uh sherlock right I, i'm guessing is that an, I, I figure anything with nasa has to be a fancy acronym they don't just come or or is that one of the unique ones or tell us it a little isn't bit about an acronym that. no it's just oh, wow. uh, it's just a standalone name that we thought was cool after searching around for a while for a, a cool name for our data warehouse and okay um it's more than a data warehouse it's a data analytics platform so we thought sherlock well he's really good at inference he's good at data analysis in his mind and so we thought it was a cool name and a catchy name rather than coming up with a tortured acronym. A tortured just, acronym. It's that just you're... called Sherlock. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so what exactly is that or what exactly is that program or how does that function? So it fits in with our air traffic management research. As part of that research, we get live data feeds probably more than anyone except the FAA as far as uh, maybe 50 or 60 different air traffic control facilities <clears throat> in the U.S. Um, feed us their real-time track data and okay. where the flights are and and now you can go on the web and see that but this we get the real data at the native update rate of 12 seconds or five seconds or one really? second much faster and, than your phone is like this right. is where your <laughs> your flight right. is and we get a lot of information about each flight what its intention is where it wants to go where it, okay you know, how late is it um, is that just standardized like all the flights are required to put this data out yes there and mm-hmm. In the U.S. airspace system, everyone has to have a flight plan. If you're going to be talking to air traffic control, you need a flight plan. Okay. You need certain information to be published. Your flight plan is the plan route of flight that you're taking. I'm guessing, is that like an API or something that's like available for anybody to just grab that info? Or is it like they have a standardized system and you're just tapping into that database? Uh, that? It's it's There are many APIs. So unfortunately, oh, wow. <laughs> um, the different types of flight data have uh, different formats that we have to blend together. So um, they do have standards, but there's not there's more than one standard, I guess is what I would say. Mm-hmm. And so th- we re- recognize that we're getting all this great data, and, and wouldn't it be great to put it in a format or in a form that people could actually use it to look at <laughs> trends over the years or to look at, to mine the data for interesting occurrences? Like, okay. are there... Are there things that happened before an incident that could be what they call a precursor to a problem? Um, can we look at fuel burn? Can we look at how much delay there is? Those kind of things. And so because we get all the air traffic data, we also get a lot of different types of weather data. Okay. But in the past, before we started Sherlock, it was sort of just spread around our file system and not really very well cataloged. But now uh, we have a very rigorous data recording and uh, then we have a data recording process, and then we move the data into a into a database, and traditional database, and also we move the data into a big data system called Hadoop, and um, into a huge rack of computers that uh-huh. can where people can bring their algorithms to the data rather than having to bring the data to their computer. They can bring their analysis ideas to the data and run them in this big rack and get you know massive amounts of of analysis done in a short amount of time. And and, and so. That's basically what Sherlock is doing is looking at this 
deluge of information from all these different sources and it's making inferences and figuring out how to make sense out of it all. Right. And to provide that platform for researchers to come in and use it. So rather than they have to figure out all the formats of the data, we put it in a consistent format. For any one flight, you can look at all the data about that flight from when it took off to when it landed, um, rather than having to look at 35 different facilities that it might have talked to. And so we we provide more of the infrastructure and the platform for for researchers to come in and do their analysis. We don't typically do the analysis ourselves, but we make it, we give them a good platform with, we have about 40 terabytes of data so far. And it goes back to 2008. So we have a lot of good trend data that people can look at. This is almost like kind of in the sense where NASA is gathering all the data together, making it in easily digestible format. So then researchers can then actually pull it together and figure out what they're trying to do. Exactly right. So it's been used for everything from creating good simulation scenarios. If someone okay. wants to test a new algorithm with real life traffic data, they can well, use it. Yeah. <laughs> you have years of it. So we have years of it. it yeah. So you can See like, okay, if all the flights start here and we turn on our algorithms, what's going to happen? Okay. Uh, they can also use it to uh, look at, like I said, what what happens when there are storm cells? What? How close to a storm cell will, will an aircraft fly? And that sort of tells you how much delay they might have to take depending on how big mm-hmm. a storm because of the biggest the biggest source of delay in the air traffic system is weather events okay. those are worst in the summer and they calculate that over there's over 10 million minutes of delay per year oh, due wow. to weather events um, when you're traveling by air every minute we can save per flight adds up to many minutes of delay savings for passengers and for the airlines too because every minute of delay costs them something like $70 or something like that. So it all adds up. So we look for ways that we can route around weather more efficiently. And so the warehouse is really good for studying those kind of uh, events as well. All right. Um, So this is, we're actually, we're recording this in early December. Hopefully we'll have it out coming up around that time where it is the holiday crunch. So have you found anything interesting or have any great hot tips for folks who are traveling in the holiday season? Or is <laughs> well, there anything that has Sherlock looked at any of that data to find out the different trends? of? Because there's the average day of flights going around, right. but there's that crunch you know, at right. certain so airports. The airlines certainly plan more flights during these busy times. And the airlines can plan the flights. It doesn't mean that the airspace has room for them. <laughs> yeah. So someone's going to wait. And they put the air, of course, the FAA puts every staff they can into it. They, everybody's on their best game. But if you add a lot of extra flights with a bad weather event, it's just going to become very, oh, it's gonna be a mess. it just sort of, um, the delay builds up slowly and then suddenly just builds up really hugely in a nonlinear sort of way. Mm-hmm. I would recommend for myself, I don't fly to the East Coast at this time <laughs> of year. As a researcher. <laughs> As a researcher, <laughs> stay away from the New York airports this time of year, because if you combine the bad weather with the fact that they're always overloaded anyway. Just, just, a just a little disturbance can make it can really like shuffle can it really start to, to snowball as it were across the whole country so um yeah it's uh, we are working on on technologies to help with that to help with better planning and to make the help the airlines make the best decision they're, they're the ones deciding which planes mm-hmm. to delay and which ones to let go depending on where they're going and depending on what the situation is so we want to develop tools for them to help them make better decisions there. And that's the cool thing about like Sherlock and gathering all this mm-hmm. data because like they've been running this thing and this is just a way you can sit back and see what they've done since 2008 and right. be like, all right, we've looked at this, we've ran these algorithms, so maybe you want to switch it up and try and do it this way. It right. might be a little bit more efficient. Or 
Yeah, and definitely we can identify the problems, and then we have other programs that are actually looking at solutions. I'm working on a project right now for Charlotte Airport. Charlotte Airport has unique problems in that they don't have a lot of room on the surface for planes to move around. There's areas where there's only one-way taxiing. So So that's just like how not just the runways, but this is areas yeah. to maneuver and get into your queue. <clears throat> right, exactly. So that there's areas where if there's a jumbo plane coming in, everyone else has to <laughs> get out of the way. There isn't room for anyone else to taxi. So they be, they get a real literally a traffic jam on the surface. And just then if you combine that with the delays of trying to go into the northeast corridor from there, fly, trying to fly into Washington or New York, LaGuardia or Kennedy, it just becomes, it can become very delay-saturated in a short amount of time. So we know what the problem is, and now we're trying to develop schedulers and advisories mm-hmm. for the airlines and for the controllers to to make better, to make them the best possible sequence of decisions so that they have the minimal amount of delay. We can't get rid of all of it, but we can certainly reduce it. When I remember, it was a couple months ago on the podcast, we had an audio version of a story on Sherlock that we put up and posted out. So folks who are listening, you can dig back into the into the feed and find that story that we put out. Um, but I remember online on NASA.gov, there was an image when that came out and it was like the United States and had all these like yellow and red lines of all the different flights going yeah, through. So that, was just, that was just one day of traffic going into and out of Charlotte. Really? Because that's our airport of interest right now. So that's just the data that we chose to show. But, yeah, that's just one day of traffic, and it's just an amazing many thousands of flights um, that somehow traverse that area. Sherlock is up and running. And so what are the kind of the next steps, you know, that you're working on or the next phases that you're kind of excited and looking forward to? As far as Sherlock, I would say uh, just making it easier for researchers to ask complex questions without having to write a lot of software. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you – you know, pose a question that you're interested in solving. Um, For example, you know, tell me the maximum crosswinds that aircraft are willing to land at SFO, or give Mm -hmm. me the worst days for crosswinds at SFO, and tell me what the average space between the aircraft was, and things like that. So it's sort of like pre-processing all the flights so they can ask those questions in an easy way and get the answer back and sort of increase the productivity of the Mm -hmm. analysis. Uh, which sounds very dry, but uh, <laughs> you get if you get more analysis done, you can you, you advance the technologies all faster. Because if if you're bound up trying to figure out what the data means or what does this mm-hmm. field in the data mean, if you're bound up with that, you can't answer any real questions. So, okay, um, trying to make the data very consistent and dependable and easy to use. And I know one of the things that they, they work on at Ames, and we just came up on the 40th anniversary, I think it was the, it's the Aviation Safety Reporting System. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, does that play into some of the stuff that you're working, or is that n- another source of data that, that gets fed into some of these? It's not something we've looked at yet, but I think it would be a really interesting source of data. But definitely there are safety researchers here who look at those reports and try to find common threads. And I think they have been used to improve the safety. If there's things that multiple actors or pilots or whoever complain about, then then people take a look at it. There's definitely so much to be mined there. And and then you add the onboard recordings from the flights and what's okay. going on on board the flight and then the weather radars and all that. And you sort of get a very complete picture of what, what's going on in the airspace. And how can we use that data to predict what's going to happen in the next few hours? Can we give passengers a warning that, hey – we think we think there's going to be several hours of delay on the East Coast in the next few hours. And, yeah. You know, 
keep an eye out. I think there's a huge effort now to look at social media, too, because the airlines are looking at social media. You see their customer service reps responding to Twitter complaints. Mm -hmm. They're also getting notifications about things going on the flights that are coming by Twitter first, like an unruly passenger or something like that. Someone will tweet about it or post a video before the airlines might even know. So working that into the system as well. And then also looking at what is the traffic jam getting to the airport? Can we tell the airlines you know, okay. your passengers are going to be late or your your, your air crew is going to be late because there's a huge traffic jam. If the air crew is willing to share their location data with us from their cell phone, we can, you mm-hmm. know, predict what time they're going to get to the airport. And it's just – it's all about information and being able to have situational awareness and make better decisions based on that. Well, especially going into the holiday season and um, – as much as your research and work has helped anybody from not from spending a little less time on the tarmac or a less time circling an airport, I'm sure there'll be people all throughout the country raising a glass to you yeah. <laughs> in the research that you're doing to help people stay out of flight delays. Yep, I think so. I think we've saved it. I think every time you fly, you save a couple of minutes because of what we've done, if not more. And that all adds up over time, over... Uh, what, 700 million people fly every year in the U.S. or something Mm -hmm. like that. So it all adds up. (laughs) Excellent. Well, and then speaking of Twitter and calling social media, we are on Twitter. We're at NASA Ames. And also for the podcast, we're using a hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So if anybody has questions for Michelle or about, or or if they have complaints for holiday travel, I'm sure they could just ping you. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) At least then look into ways to to hopefully do it more efficient the next time around but thanks for coming on over thank you matt that was great thank you very much